0: Well, if I were to ask, what is the most talked about and thought about chapter of the Bible amongst evangelicals, I think the answer would be Revelation chapter 13. Now, I doubt that it's the most preached chapter, and I'm sure it's not the most read chapter either, but in the evangelical mind today, the content of Revelation chapter 13 occupies prime real estate. In our thoughts and our conversations. Why is that? Well, because in chapter 13 there are beasts and there are marks of those beasts, and people's attention is arrested by the mystery that seems always just about to be unveiled here in this passage. It makes us wonder well, what's, what's really going on in this chapter? Well, we're right in the middle of the book of Revelation and we're in the last part of the fourth cycle. You remember the we said you could break Revelation up into seven different cycles of seven. Well, this is the fourth one and we're in the middle of it. And if you remember, we're we're looking at the unfolding plan of God here from the perspective of the angelic or the demonic. And in chapter 12 we see this at work. The church The people of God are portrayed as the mother of the Messiah in labor, about to deliver, but there's a a dragon, a serpent, waiting to devour him. And now from from the human perspective, what does this look like? Well, it looks like kings and pharaohs and bad actors on the human stage setting out to secure their realms and secure their power by killing their enemies and disposing of threats. When Pharaoh drowned the children in the Nile... When Herod went to kill all the boys in Bethlehem, they weren't so much worried about killing the Messiah, they wanted to to conserve their reign. But actually, there was more at work than just their ambition. They were serving their master, the evil one, to destroy the Messiah. But they didn't. He was born, and he dealt that ancient snake a head-crushing blow. That's what happened. At the cross, at the death, burial, and resurrection, Satan, the accuser, was disarmed. And if you were there on that day, outside of Jerusalem, you would have seen some fascinating things. You would have seen the sky growing dark, the earth quaking. It would have been something to behold. But if you were in heaven, you would have seen that great battle between the angelic host and the armies of darkness. Or or at least that's how it's pictured for us. If you wanted to know what the death And resurrection of Christ looks like from the perspective of the evil one, it looks like him being utterly defeated, his power taken away, and him exiled from the courts of heaven, never to accuse God's people again. And so he made war on the church and hurled a flood of accusations against her. And though they came with tremendous force and came in judgment and came to condemn, they were not able The earth opened up and swallowed the torrents down so that God's people were secure. Now, that's chapter 12. Now, triply frustrated. He's been cast out of heaven. He knows his time is short. He's been disarmed of his accusations. The evil one is in a furious rage and begins a campaign of total war against the saints. He cannot get to God. He cannot prevent the Messiah from coming. He cannot condemn the elect. And so he focuses all of his attention now on deceiving people and making life on earth miserable for those whose citizenship is in heaven. And we read about this warfare in Revelation chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems or crowns on its horns and blasphemous names written on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and haughty blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God blaspheming his name that is those who dwell in heaven also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth will worship it Everyone whose names have not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken to captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he will be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Verse 11, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all of the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, making even fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lives. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding this morning as we work through it. I pray, Lord, that you would be honored, and that your church would be strengthened and built up through the preaching of your word this morning, Lord. I pray that you would help me and help all of us here, Lord. Nobody deserves To be here and worshiping you. I don't deserve to be up here preaching. Lord, all that we have we have received by grace because you have been so kind to us and been merciful and not given us what we deserve, but instead, Lord, taken us up into the heavenly places with you. Lord, you've saved us and redeemed us. And I pray, Lord, that you would. Bless us this morning and help us to understand your word so that your church would be strengthened and ready to face days ahead with confidence in you and in your word. Lord, help me to preach and help us to hear. Amen. What we just read are the fifth and sixth visions or signs in this fourth section of the book and and in it they bring into focus two beasts but really it starts at the end of chapter 12 in the last half of the last verse it says and he stood so that is the, the dragon and he stood on the sand of the sea so the dragon is standing on the beach now why does this matter well it matters because in the ancient world very rarely did good things come from the sea Raiders and invaders came from the sea. Tempests at sea devoured the lives of husbands and sons. Destructive storms blew in from the sea and ravaged the land. It tossed and it frothed and it wasn't a a pleasant thing. And so if you were to, to take a nice tranquil picture of a seaside resort and you were to take that and show it to an ancient Mediterranean, you know, tell them I'm going there to relax, they would laugh at you. They would think it was a joke, right? Yeah, right. You're telling me this ocean, this sea is is safe? This is somewhere you actually want to go? No way. Trouble comes from the sea and nothing but trouble. That's how the ancients viewed the oceans. And so it's fitting then that the beast that the dragon calls comes up from the sea. And John describes it as it comes up. and, And you get a sense of it slowly emerging from the waves. First, he sees it's horns and then he sees its head it's almost like a mythical monster as it rises up from the surf 10 horns seven heads a crowns on each horn a face like a lion a body like a leopard feet like a bear see is there anything significant about that well all of these images are used throughout the old testament to describe various enemies of god's people In Daniel chapter 7, four empires come up from the sea. The first, a lion. The second, a bear. The third, a leopard. And the fourth, more terrifying than all of them, is described as having ten horns, which are ten kings that wage war against the people of God. And many commentators look at this connection between Revelation 13, Daniel 7, and they conclude, well, this beast must represent a human empire. Usually Rome or a revived Rome with the heads and the crowns being various emperors. Often the beast is associated with Nero for a number of reasons. Nero was no doubt a beast. But even though there is a correlation, certainly what we have here in Revelation is not the same as what we have in Daniel. What we have in Revelation is the force behind all of those other kingdoms. Which is why the picture is not of those individual kingdoms, but if you were to take them all and combine them into one thing, this is what you would have. And so it's not a unique empire. It is the guiding force and guiding power behind every human empire or government that sets itself up against God. That's what this beast coming up out of the sea is. And that power that it exercises is the power of false religion, the religion of the dragon, the religion of Satan. Why? Well, in, in, the, in the in the in the chapter, how many times do you see the goal is to call people to worship the beast? Now, this is. Uh, I remind you, this section is from a spiritual perspective. And what we have here are the spiritual underpinnings or or really the satanic substructures of any entity or institution, political, whatever it is. Anything that opposes God and his people of whom the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Medes and the Greeks and the Romans all are examples of. And all of you are here, you're, you're curious people and you're smart people. You've thought about these things before. You've thought about the nature of the beast. And, and so you're probably thinking, well, okay, all right, prove it. Prove that the beast is false religion. But what's the dragon's mission? It's to destroy, to destroy mankind. And if he cannot do it by accusation, he'll do it by deception and by pressure. He can destroy by making the truth confusing or making it difficult for people to hear the truth or make people even more opposed to the truth. And then he can make life miserable for those who believe it. And that's the goal of his warfare to kill by distorting the truth. And what better way to do that than by providing an alternative? An alternative to Christ. Uh, an antichrist. And you remember last week I said antichrist doesn't mean. Against Christ. It's often how we think of Antichrist. An opponent of Christ. Someone who rises up to fight against Christ. Well, Antichrist does fight against Christ, but it doesn't mean an opponent. The word Antichrist means in the place of Christ. In fact, John says in uh, 1 John, many Antichrists have already come. What is an antichrist? It's a replacement. It's an alternative. It's a substitute for Christ. It's a different Christ, who of course is no Christ at all, but an idol. But if people believe in that idol, they will become both hostile towards true Christianity and condemned in their sin. And so this beast of false satanic religion is far more effective at accomplishing the goals of the dragon than Rome or a human empire would be. In fact, this false religion, or maybe you could expand that to false or wrong or dishonest ways of looking at the world, these are the reasons why a government would persecute the church in the first place, because behind all political power is this kind of religious power. Every, uh, even in the government, even in governments that don't think they are religious, they are. It's inescapable. The real issues of life are religious in nature so governments that don't think they're religious are actually zealously religious here's an example think of communism it has a beginning a big bang it has a, it progresses towards a kind of heaven a, a utopia where all are equal in every way it has a morality private property is wrong and so there's no such thing as theft, no such thing as covetousness actually covetousness and jealousy are, are right in communism it has a view of humanity they are cosmic accidents that exist to serve the state. And if they exist to serve the state, what's it matter if we fling away a million lives for progress? And it has a God that demands entire and unwavering allegiance. The controlling party. The state party. Now, the God is different. The God is an idol. But all of this, you see, is his religious thinking. It's a religious mindset. And that, that fervor is there. That religious zeal upholding the whole system. It's the same for any secular system, even here in Canada. Atheists have a religion. They have doctrines that must be adhered to. They have sins that demand a judgment. If you defy them, you're nothing less than a heretic. And the zeal to spread these doctrines put many of our own missionaries to shame. My point is that this religious way of thinking, even about atheism, is demonic. And all of it comes in the place of Christ. And that's what the beast symbolizes. And I say this because people tend to think of the beast as a, as a political figure, as an individual who will arrive on the scene and oppose Christ. But I think it, it goes much deeper than that. It's much more foundational than that. Because under all of the politics and moral and cultural chaos is this false religious thinking, whether you call it Liberalism or socialism or communism or environmentalism or atheism or humanism, all of it comes in the place of Christ. They're substitutes for the truth for Christianity. And so if you've ever wondered who the beast is, let me make that very clear to you. And in, in fact, I'm convinced that it is so clear you will not have to speculate again. And afterward, when we take a look at this passage you will know without a doubt that the beast is false religion replacing or imitating or trying to substitute Christ. We're going to do that just by taking a look at chapter 13 and see how the beast is described and how he is described in connection to Christ. Verse 1, point 1. In the same way Christ was sent into the world by God the Father to save men, so the beast is sent into the world by the dragon to destroy them. Point two. We'll work through these quickly. Just as the Father gave all power and authority to Christ after his resurrection, Matthew 28, all power and authority has been given to me, so the beast is given the power and authority of the dragon. It's in verse 5. Number three, just as Christ was mortally wounded, yet rose again from the grave. And how, how Paul says, because this happened to him in, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, look to the you want to know if you should believe in Christ? He, he, would, he died and rose again. And so, in the same way, Christ was mortally wounded and rose. So the beast appears to be mortally wounded, but is revived. In fact, uh, the same words in the Greek are used, that are used to describe the slain lamb who yet lives, lives again. Those same words are used here to describe the beast who is uh, mortally wounded and yet is healed. Number four, just as Christ always does the will of the Father carrying out his plan, so the beast carries out the will of the dragon by making war on the saints. That's verse 7. Five, accolades that are given to the Lord are given to the beast. I mean, how many times in the Old Testament especially do you read, Who is like the Lord? How many times do we sing, Who is like the Lord? And what is the cry of the worshipers of the beast? Who is like the beast and who can fight against him? Six, where Christ glorified God in his preaching, so the beast blasphemes God with the words of his mouth. Seven, Just as Christ ministered for three and a half years, so the beast exercises authority for three and a half years, 42 months. Eight, as Christ goes out to conquer the kingdom of darkness and advance the kingdom of God, the beast goes to conquer the kingdom of God and advance the kingdom of the evil one. And finally, nine, again it's in verse seven, and authority was given to it, to the beast, over every tribe and people and language and nation. Have you heard that language before? Revelation 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The beast, without a doubt, is a kind of counterfeit Christ. And the dragon is a kind of counterfeit God. And what you have here in chapter 13 is it's nothing less than an unholy trinity working out its deceptions in the world. You say, well, if it's a trinity, where's the third person? Well, look at the second beast, the beast from the land who's later called the false prophet, and see what he does. He is introduced literally as a, as a dragon. Right? Not a wolf, but a dragon in sheep's clothing. Take a look at verse 11. This is the only description we have of his appearance. He comes out with horns like a lamb and the voice of a dragon. He looks like a lamb, but he sounds like a dragon. I think it's silly sometimes when people get caught up in wild speculation about uh, about who these characters are. I really don't think it's very difficult to understand. He looks like a sheep and he speaks with the voice of a dragon. He's a false teacher. He's a false prophet. He's a satanic prophet. And the work that he does, it's described actually in similar work to the Holy Spirit. He does all of the things the Holy Spirit does. He just does them falsely and he does them for the dragon and for the beast. He makes people to worship the beast. He points people to the beast. He glorifies the beast. Again, does that sound familiar? If you were here on, uh, on Tuesday night at Bible study, we took a look at this verse. John 16, 13 and 14. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me. This is Jesus speaking of the Holy Spirit. He will glorify me. He will declare, uh, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And that's what the false prophet is doing. But it's not pointing to Christ. He is pointing to Antichrist. He makes people to worship the beast. And it's kind of a, a demonic regeneration. Or maybe better, a, a degeneration. As people are hardened in their allegiance to the evil one. And this false prophet performs miracles, false miracles to deceive people. And where the Holy Spirit sanctifies God's people, this prophet causes people to sin. He, he tells the worshipers to make an image of the beast and to worship it. And I mean, if, if there's anything we as believers know that we should not do, it's make an image and then worship it. No, so this, this counterfeit of the Holy Spirit is not convicting of sin, he's encouraging sin. It has an illusion of the power to give life. To give life as it breathes into this image that it commanded people to make. And this again, this is an illusion to the power of the Holy Spirit. If you think of of creation, God formed man out of the dust, made in his own image and breathed. And that word breath in Hebrew, it's the word spirit. He breathed into the man and the man became a living being. When people are born again, John 3, it talks about them as being born of the Spirit. The Spirit is what gives spiritual life. Here, this false prophet is giving life to the image that the people made. It's as if he's molding his followers to be in the likeness of the beast. He even seals them, just like God's people were sealed. But it's not a seal, it's a mark. He marks them as belonging to the beast. It's really a picture of what John writes about in 1 John 5.19. He says, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's who worships the beast. That's who worships him. That's who belongs to him. Those who are worldly, those who dwell upon the earth. And again, you remember in the book of Revelation, that phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, is always contrasted with those who are in heaven. Those who dwell upon the earth means those who are worldly, and those are the ones who belong to the beast. And it's through them that he makes war on the saints. So put it all together. What's the picture you have in this chapter? The dragon wages war on the church. Right, that's the goal introduced at the end of chapter 12. The dragon wages war against the church, against God, by deceiving people into worshiping him. And when they worship him, they become his agents for harassing, persecuting, destroying, oppressing, and fighting against the church. And it's not done through a particular individual or empire or anything like that. But it's done by many individuals and empires throughout time. We saw this in action in the first seven churches, in the very opening of the book of Revelation. That those first three chapters, without a doubt, they are the most concrete in the book. There's not a lot of symbolism there. There's not a lot of abstraction. They're pretty straightforward, and they're tied to real events in real cities. In those chapters, what were the forces that were threatening the church? You remember, sometimes, in, uh, like in Thyatira, it came from within, And you had a false prophet, Jezebel, masquerading as Christianity. But far more often in those churches, the threat was false religion of a kind that didn't even pretend to be Christian. And it was enforced by and guided by the power of the state or other governing bodies. So if you wanted to buy and sell in Thyatira, you had to be in league with the trade guilds. And to be in a trade guild you had to worship the god or the gods of those guilds. And if you didn't, you couldn't work in that field. So you can imagine if you're a Christian in that ancient city and you want to sell uh, rugs, well, that's no problem. You can sell rugs. You just go to the local temple, worship the god, participate in the service, get your, get your uh, rug seller's license, and out you go. If you're a Christian, could you do that? In Pergamum, if you didn't want to worship at the Pantheon or didn't want to worship the emperor, you were deemed an enemy of the state. This is why Jesus in His warning to them says, you live where the throne of Satan is. In Smyrna they suffered because of false accusations from the Jews, which again is called the synagogue of Satan. And whatever area or whatever institution this persecution came from, all of it was pretensed by false Religious thinking, it's why they're all connected to the satanic in some way. And that's why I said earlier the greatest threat facing the church, it's not political, it's religious in nature. And it's why the works of the dragon and the devil are not so much to influence politicians as much as deceive the multitudes. This is why atheistic governments, with no regard for God at all, seem to be pursuing an anti God agenda so vigorously. The reason is because unbeknownst to them, they are actually very religious. And they do this pursuit with the fervor of a religious fanatic because they are religious fanatics. They're working with all of their might to put something else in the place of Christ. Even today, the state can issue quasi-divine promises of salvation to their loyal and believing subjects and political leaders can become kind of demigods. States have no qualms about using religion to further their goals. I mean, just look at the Orthodox Church in Russia or the the 3 Self Church in China. They're servants not of the Word, not of God, but servants of the false religious thinking that controls the minds and guides the decisions of those in the land. And all of it can be traced back to the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. So listen, if you're, if you're outside of Christ, you have a God. You even have a Trinity. You say, well, I don't believe in God. It doesn't really change anything. That just puts you all the more firmly in the dragon's grasp. Now maybe you say, well, you know, I just live for myself. I don't have a God. I don't worship anybody. Really, my God is me. Did you know that that's the number one tenant of Satanism? Live for yourself, Alone. Don't be worried about anybody else. Just live for you. If you were we go to the satanic temple and ask them, how do I be a Satanist? That's what they would tell you. It's a little ironic, isn't it? So if you're saying the only thing I'm going to live for is myself, there's your religion. You're a, you're a closet Satanist. So there's only two camps. There are those who are sealed with the name of God and those who are branded by the beast. There's, there's no middle ground here. And you really have to ask yourself, who is it that you serve? And if it's not the Lord God and His Christ, well, don't be deceived into thinking that you're neutral. You're not neutral. And if you think you are, you've been tricked, which is exactly the goal in the first place. To trick and to deceive and to blind and to kill. So, so don't go on thinking, I'm just neutral, coasting along. No, that's here in Revelation 13 called worshiping the beast. So stop believing in lies and believe the truth. Now to the church, this is important. Considering these are the battle lines, what's that mean for us? It means the main front line in spiritual warfare is not political and not legal and not educational and not economic. The main front in this war, the theater in which it is fought, is between truth and deception light and darkness what is true and what is a lie who is Christ and who are his imposters this is where the battle is fought and where the battle will be won and this will help you I hope to think about how you wage war in this world because there is a war to be waged but it's not with armies and equipment and politics and judiciaries that may come as the fruit of it but it's not the root of it Because at the root of the matter is right worship and truth. And church, you've been given weapons to shine the truth into this world and advance the kingdom in the face of opposition. And they're not many, but they are mighty. Unconditional love, the proclamation of the truth, especially and primarily the gospel, and intercessory prayer. There is no enemy that those cannot overcome. I mean, this is how you shine in the darkness and how you glorify Christ. Now, sure, there are a place for other things. Like The courts have a place. Education has a place. Politics even have a place. But that place is not the prime place. And any engagements in those other arenas without love and truth and prayer is just a waste of time. Because bills and laws aren't going to threaten the power of the evil one. Those things cannot change the hearts of men. But prayer and truth and dying to self-love can. It's preaching and praying and loving. Those are the means that bring God into the battle. Those are the weapons that advance His kingdom and the means that we must constantly employ. And so if you're worried about the condition of the world around you and you want to do something about it, you don't know where to focus your attention, focus it there. God will take care of the rest. Well, now we get to verses 16, 17, and 18. The mark of the beast on the earth. The mark that he imprints upon those who dwell upon the earth. And this has garnered endless speculation. And so it's helpful to start with, what do we know for certain about it, and then go out from there. And the first thing to understand is it's not a literal mark. And we know this because of what it's compared with. It's contrasted with the sealing of God's people. And so in the same way the Holy Spirit seals believers, the false prophet marks the followers of the beast. Now anybody here, I'll pay you a hundred bucks if you can stand up and show me on your forehead or your hand where you were sealed as a Christian. Yeah, nobody can, can they? We know better, we don't do that. Well, in the same way, you don't have to go around looking for the mark of the beast on people. And I think this might be really challenging the way that uh, a lot of us think about it, but but isn't it obvious? Look at what bookends these verses about the mark. In the start and at the end, you have the Lamb's Book of Life written from before the foundation of the world in verse 8. And then in chapter 14 you have those who were sealed. So you have the elect whose names were in the book of life and you have those who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit and we're told they're sealed on their foreheads for God. Then in between those two places you have those who are marked as belonging to the beast. And so in the same way you can't see your name in the book of life and in the same way you don't have a a visible outward seal of belonging to the Lord There is no visible outward mark of the beast. So what is it? Well, in Deuteronomy 6, 8, there actually is a a similar passage. And, And in that passage, it commands faithful Israelites to have the law written on their foreheads and bound to their hands. And by Jesus' day, so a few thousand years later, they have taken this passage literally and actually had little leather boxes with scripture in them called phylacteries and they bound them with belts around their head or sometimes on their wrists. But you understand that missed Mark, missed the point of Deuteronomy 6.8 because what was meant by the binding of the word to your forehead and your hand was that the faithful to the Lord would be faithful to His law. They were to always be faithful thinking about it always on their heads as if it was bound to their heads and they were always to be putting it into practice it was what they did with their hands they were meditating on the word and doing the word I mean you can imagine Jesus can't you in the New Testament telling the Pharisees you you think you kept the law because you put a belt with a verse on it and wrapped it around your forehead and you think you're keeping the law well it's the same thing here It's a call to loyalty and faithfulness to God. Everything you thought, everything you did, it was done with an eye to please the Lord. It was done in service to God. In every situation, you're asking yourself, how does God want me to think about this? How does God want me to respond? The word bound to the head and the hand meant you were controlled by a concern for godliness. Well, the mark on the be- of the beast on the forehead or the hand means these people are devoted to the beast and to his ways. They are not godly, but beast like. And since the beast, remember, is symbolic of satanic religion, satanic religious thinking, then these people marked by the beast, you say, who are they? They're those who are sold out and ardently devoted to the religion and philosophy of the day. Those ideas and ideals and idols that take the place of Christ. That's what the mark symbolizes. Total devotion to the beast. To the present way of the world. And you say, does that, does that mean that people who belong to the beast can, can never be saved? If they you know, were ardently devoted to the world one day, could they not come out of that the next? Well, I understand the perspective here. It's from a spiritual perspective. We're not looking at it as it it goes along. We're looking at it from the eyes of God who knows, who knows, without a doubt, who will believe and who will be lost. In the end, there will be nobody who comes into heaven and the Lord will say, I didn't expect to see you here. And there will be no one who descends into hell and the Lord said, I didn't think that you would go. He's omniscient. He knows all things. And, And here it's laid out in that final picture, right? So imagine standing on the day of judgment with two charts, those who are sealed by the Lord, those who are marked by the beast. That's the picture of it here. And it means, another thing we know for sure, only those who worship the beast can get the mark. That's who it's given to, those who dwell upon the earth, those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, those who are not sealed, those who are worshipers of the beast, which means christians cannot receive it if you belong to christ you can not receive the mark of the beast it's not something you can be tricked into getting like a microchip or a tattoo or whatever it used to be credit cards And some people don't like to hear this because they really don't believe it. And they think, well, this is going to make believers lower their guard, and they're not going to be as diligent, and they're not going to be investigatory to make sure that they don't accidentally receive the mark of the beast. Do you really think that that's what this is calling you to do? To investigate every possible uh, way of participating in the economy to see if it's somehow the mark of the beast? I think that's absolutely foolish. And I I hope that this takes a certain load of anxiety off of people. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you will not be tricked into receiving this mark. Believers are sealed by God and cannot belong to the beast. They say, well, why is it about buying and selling? If you don't have the mark, you can't do it. That's pretty specific, isn't it? Well, again, what is the mark? It's devotion to the beast. And so what's the application? If you are not devoted to the beast, you will suffer economic hardship. As a Christian, there will be times and places when you will endure economic difficulty and have career advancements and career paths closed to you unless you declare your loyalty to the religions or ideas that deny or defy Christ. And again, we saw this already in Thyatira in chapter 2. You want to be a merchant? You want to be a stonemason? You want to be a physician? Bow the knee, and you can. Yes, this kind of assault has assailed the church for millennia. In ancient Rome, there were periods where if you wanted to buy and sell, and this is not you going to the grocery store, this is you being a merchant or owning the grocery store, the only way you could do it was with a license, which isn't much different from today, is it? That sounds easy enough, but there was a catch. The only way to get a license was to go to the Roman temple and take a pinch of incense and throw it on the altar to the emperor and confess Caesar is Lord, Caesar Kyrios. Can a Christian do that to get a license? Can a Christian go and just worship the emperor a little bit, maybe if it's not in your heart? Can a Christian do that? Not without denying Christ. you Maybe you say, well, I don't mean it in the heart. Yes, but by your actions you deny Him. Titus 3.16. This is what would have been clear in the minds of that first original audience to receive this revelation of Jesus Christ. They would have been thinking, this looks a lot like emperor worship to get a trading license. But it's not limited to the ancient world. This kind of thing happens throughout history, even or maybe especially in our own day. If you're in China, for example, and you want to go to university or to trade school, right, you want to be something other than a farmer or a, or a factory worker, you have to join the Communist Party. And to join the Communist Party, you have to sign an agreement. And that agreement says, I will not attend church. I will not become a Christian, and to the contrary, I will resolutely oppose all religion for the rest of my life. This is a form of this mark required to buy and sell, isn't it? You want to advance economically? You want to get an education? It's free. You just sign your soul over to the communist Marxist beast. In Muslim countries, the pressure might be more obviously religious, though it it varies greatly depending on what country you're in, but Christians are are sometimes relegated to the fringes of society and economics. That's the same in our own land, increasingly so. Institutions, cultural momentum and and corporate interest, motivated and guided by this principle of false religion, often put pressure on believers to compromise on Scripture, if not barring them outright. You can't practice law in certain provinces if your understanding of sexuality and gender is deemed unacceptable. You can be fired from your job if you don't uphold company values, which have nothing to do with the purpose of the company. And you can see this demand being placed on people. If you want to participate in the economy and and get ahead in the world, well, you're going to have to love and celebrate the things of the world. You're going to have to be, using the language of Revelation 13, devoted and worshiping the beast. And that's what all of this is symbolic of, devotion to the worldly satanic system. When a person refuses their ability to advance, to buy and sell, it's curtailed or cut off. It's one of the ways the dragon wages war against God's people. And then you have the number itself. And and I think this is actually meant to encourage the saints, not confuse them. It's not a, a mystery to be solved. Now we read it calls for wisdom and is given to the one who has understanding. But what does the Bible teach about people with those two qualities? What does the Bible teach about those who have wisdom and understanding? Well, the Bible teaches that those with wisdom and understanding are people who know and love the Lord. They are those who fear the Lord and walk in His ways. And so you could read this and think it's calling for something unique, above and beyond special wisdom and special understanding. But I don't think it means that. I don't think it means you need some special knowledge or or great intellect to figure it out. I think it means you need to fear the Lord and know His Word. And so this is not written to historians and to codebreakers, but to Christians. And the expectation is that they would be able to figure out what this number means. It's not some esoteric, mysterious thing reserved only for the sage. It's expected that those who receive this book would be able to know it. And listen, I, I don't think it's uh, gematria either. We say, well, what's that? That's where Hebrew letters are assigned certain numerical values. And then if you take a name and, and, and all of those numerical values assigned to it and add them all up, you can find out what... Uh, a number that corresponds to the name. Now, this has caused all kinds of consternation in the church. People thinking, you know, the beast is Napoleon, Hitler, some Russian leader, Genghis Khan. It just goes on and on because if you, if you play with the names long enough, maybe translate them through a few different languages, maybe add a title or drop a letter, you can usually get pretty close to 666. Now the closest is probably Nero, because if you add up the numbers associated with the letters in his name in Hebrew and leave out a vowel, you can come up with something close to 666. And it could be that this refers to Nero. It could. But I don't think that's what's meant here. I don't think it's a clue to someone's identity. When it says it's the number of a man, not a, it's, it's, also, it's also the number of the beast, and not a, not a man specifically, but a number of man, as in a number of mankind. And I think the number is, as I said, meant to encourage the faithful. And you say, how? Well, because it's the number of a man. Now, God's number, we've seen it over and over again, is number seven. It's the number of perfection. A Perfection, seven is used in the Bible when speaking of God, to speak of something so complete, nothing can be added to it to improve it. It's the perfect number a symbolic of perfection to which nothing can be added, and it's often attributed to God. But the number six 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 is not the number of perfection. And no matter how many sixes you string together, you always fall short. You're never going to get to seven. Even if it's You know, 666,666,666, it always falls short. It's never complete. And so no matter how hard the dragon and his religion tries, no matter how powerful he becomes, no matter how convincing his deceptions, he'll never be a seven. He'll never, no matter how great his counterfeits are, he'll never take the place of God. He'll only ever be 666. It's like if you were to say of something, it'll never be a ten. Now it's, it's good. It'll never be a ten. You know what that means. It's never going to be perfect. It has flaws that cannot be overcome. It's doomed to perpetually fall short. Well, it's the same here. Six, no matter how many you have, never becomes seven. It always misses the mark. And this satanic religion will never, ever be victorious and never, ever be complete. It will always fail. And that's maybe disappointing. It's more interesting to think of the mark as a microchip or a tattoo or Nero or some other world leader. But even if it's less interesting, I think it's more satisfying and more encouraging. Because the point is, no matter how popular or powerful or widespread the kingdom of the beast appears to be, it will never outshine, outstrip, or supplant the kingdom of God. The beast will always fall short, and at his very best, he'll only ever be a six. Now, briefly, briefly, chapter 14, 1 through 5, it's the last in this cycle of seven. It says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of a mighty waters and the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with a woman, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as... First fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth was no lie found, for they are blameless. We began this cycle in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, with the Messiah coming from the church. And the church, though protected, was under assault for the last two chapters. The spiritual forces arrayed against her had been relentless in their pursuit and persecution. But now, it comes to an end. And it's not Michael and the archangels, Michael and the angels who will fight. This time, the Lord Himself comes to strike down the devil and his angels once and for all. And maybe you wonder, well, where is the final judgment in this cycle? It's right here. Because this is from the perspective of Satan and his horde, remember? And who is judgment of the angels reserved for? 1 Corinthians 6. It's given to the church. And that's exactly who arrives to bring an end once and for all to the devil's reign. The names of their father are on their foreheads, distinguishing them from the followers of the beast. They alone can worship God. They have not defiled themselves with women and are, are virgins. And this again, this is figurative language. It's the same as Second Corinthians 11. Paul says of the Corinthian Christians, I promised you to one husband, to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. And you're, what does that mean? It means that they're faithful. They haven't given themselves to idols or to idolatry or to the false religion of the land or to the beast or to the dragon. They are spiritually pure, faithful to Christ, blameless. They, they haven't bowed down to the dragon or the beast or the false prophet, but belong body and soul to the Lord their God. And if this is final judgment from the perspective of the demonic then it's also the moment when the persecution and oppression of that war comes to an end no longer will anyone be accused because our war is over in these chapters 12 and 13 they have been a, a picture of the church at war it's always been struggling sometimes it's in ascent sometimes it's in decline but it's always fighting for ground in the warfare language permeates these chapters and it seems at the end of chapter 13 the whole world has joined the ranks of the beast they all follow him verse 16 rich poor slave free from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and you have a group of beleaguered christians holding on and it looks like the end is near and it is for the beast because then from Mount Zion comes the Lord Jesus with 144,000 of His Holy Ones to break the lines of the beast once and for all. And it doesn't look that way. A lot of times in history you can look at the church and say, you know, it really doesn't look like the church is victorious or triumphant or conquering. It looks like the church is being conquered. But Revelation shows us what it's really like. And here, it doesn't matter the state of the church. The church always wins you know there's there's something almost inherent in us that makes us long for this kind of deliverance doesn't it a savior it's almost a trope in literature and film it's like in, in lord of the rings where they're besieged at the hornberg in helms deep and when they're about to be overwhelmed gandalf arrives with an army and, and rushes down to save them everybody looks forward to this right they're moved by it they admire it why Because everyone longs for a deliverer who will arrive in their darkest hour and set all things right. Where does this come from? It comes from being made in the image of God. Everybody knows that they need a deliverer. Everybody knows that things are are not right in the world and they long for someone who can come and save them and put things on the proper path. And some look to Christ as the Savior. But for many others, they look to the beast, to some anti-Christ, a replacement Savior with an alternative heaven and an idol in the place of God. But for those who trust in Christ, you have put your trust in the right place. You have put your hope in the winning side. And no matter how beleaguered the church may seem to be, Christ will not forget her and will save and will deliver all of those who belong to him. Now let's pray. Lord, thank you for the great hope we have in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that though the nations rage, it is no threat to you. And I pray, Lord, that you would use this morning to give confidence your people and that anxieties would be driven out, worries would be put to rest, fears would be extinguished, that we would be a people who are able to face the future with confidence knowing that you, Lord, are always in command. Nothing escapes your sight, nothing escapes your will, God. There's no rogue agents here. It belongs to you and is from you and for you. And Lord, we know that you will always do good to your people, even if we can't see it. And so I pray that your church would be strengthened. That your people would be encouraged. And that they would be able to more fully cast their anxieties on you because you care for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.